Hello and welcome to Time in the Market, an Invesco podcast series for UK professional investors. I'm Ben Gutteridge, your host, a failed TV celebrity, desperate for a bit of attention, but also an investment director from within Invesco's multi-asset strategies division. In this series, we'll be interviewing some of the highest profile names from in and around the financial industry and from both within and without Invesco. But before the action begins, we want to stress this interview should not be considered as investment advice and remind you that any capital invested is always capital at risk. Finally, we would encourage you to listen to some further important information immediately following the interview. Thank you and on with the show. Hello, everyone, and a warm welcome to the latest Time in the Market podcast in which we'll be discussing the emerging markets and to help us navigate this fascinating uh, and often emotive area of investing gives me great pleasure to introduce an industry titan and uh, a fund manager I've long admired and followed, uh, Fidelity's head of emerging markets, uh, Nick Price. Nick, welcome to the podcast. How are you? Thanks, Ben. Yeah, very well. Um, that's, that's very kind and somewhat flattering. <laughs> well, uh, well deserved. And look, I am genuinely thrilled to get this opportunity to speak to you, not least because Goodness me, you're on holiday, so how generous of you to give up your time. Uh, and of course, our focus today will be, as I said, emerging markets. But to kick off, we have 10 quick-fire questions to help us learn a little bit more about our guest, both as a, an investor uh, and a person. And uh, this is sort of known throughout the social media world as prefer or defer. You simply tell us which option you prefer. But if it's too tricky, you can, of course, uh, defer. You happy to play along, Nick? Yes, fire away. Okay, let's, uh, good man, let's do it. Okay, Asia or Latin America? Asia. India or China? India. Dollar or RMB? Dollar. Tech or banks? Banks. Insurance or energy? Defer. Macro or stock picking? Stock picking. Media or research? Research. Restaurant or gymnasium? Both. <laughs> Le Bleu or the All Blacks? Le Bleu. Warren Buffett or Francois Pinard? Oh, tough one. <laughs> Warren Buffett. Wow, well done, Nick. Beautifully navigated. Some tricky ones in there, I thought. <laughs> Pausing here and there. I think I would, I would be aligned with you on, uh, on a lot of that. Other than, of course, as everyone knows, I prefer media to, uh, to research. But other than that, I think we're, we're pretty aligned. So thanks, Nick, for being such a, a good sport. And sets us up for, uh, for more of a conversation on, uh, a more in-depth conversation on emerging markets. So while I, I'll let you catch your breath. I'll pose our first uh, proper question. Uh, and relates to the manufacturing sector, which um, you know, I think we can all observe, or seemingly from the data, is in a bit of a slump. And we might assume that uh, that's been pretty bad news for emerging markets, given the importance of manufacturing to those economies. So the opener, then, uh, Nick, is can emerging markets sort of perform if this manufacturing slump persists? Or are you seeing any signs that perhaps this slump might be turning around? Yeah, no, it's a great question, Ben. So, uh, look, I think if, if one takes a step back, um, you know, the, the advent of COVID saw huge consumption of material products um, as everyone was staying at home, COVID lifted, and 
naturally everyone was looking for experiences, dining out, going on holiday, and, and hence the service sector has been, been strong. I think a couple of points to make here. The strong dynamic of consumption of, of goods versus services will, will sort of uh, ameliorate over time and, and, and get more balanced. So I'm not overly concerned about manufacturing versus services, um, and, and I do think manufacturing will, will come back. Um, it's also, if you look at it from an Asian perspective, um, there's been a particularly weak tech cycle. Um, no new real innovation in things like the iPhone, and, and that's also impacted a lot of the, the manufacturing segment. But ultimately, that will be reinvigorated. There will be new products that will come out. Um, so, you know, I think manufacturing will come back. That will be good for the, for the Asian manufacturers. But I do think also emerging markets can perform regardless of that. And part of that relates to both the valuations and, I would say, um, where interest rates are in, in emerging markets. Okay, great. And, and no doubt there are some, some outstanding companies that you think can, can, can perform. And I'd, I'd like to talk a little bit about uh, those companies. But on the subject uh, of interest rates, though, deferring back to developed markets, uh, and unfortunately uh, this is sort of levied at uh, emerging markets a lot, so apologies for the lack of innovation in my question. But uh, you know, in, the, in the short term, people are a little bit more optimistic about growth, pushing back recession uh, dates, uh, perhaps indefinitely. But um, shorter term expectations aside, you know, we are in this sort of higher for longer interest rate regime. It does appear, does, it doesn't seem too uh, reckless to suggest we might get a recession over the next sort of 12 months. Uh, and that could be bad news for demand, could see the dollar uh, strengthen. I mean, are those sorts of things like a big worry for you? Or do you just have to sort of get on and, 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 and do your thing? So, look, I mean, we're very stock-picking focused, um, but, but, you know, but my perspective on, on, on the sort of U.S. interest rate cycle, uh, which one can't avoid no matter what segment of the market you're investing in, is, and I've been fairly consistent on this for actually for some time, uh, is that we're likely to see, you know, quite a significant fall-off in rates in the near term. Um, so, you know, we've had some pretty, um, I'd say, positive or low CPI prints the UK uh, yesterday, but the US, you know, is at 3% CPI and falling, short-term rates are closer to 5%. So I think there is now scope. We have, high, we have real rates, and we have a scope for a rate-cutting cycle, I think, in, in, in the near term. The medium-term picture is one where I do think we have um, more structural inflation for many reasons, for um, the, the, the near-shoring or reshoring of production, deglobalization, um, many, many reasons I think that, that we'll see sort of slightly higher inflation. But the near-term picture, um, this cycle, I think, is firmly down. Um, and, and the other point I'd make on, on the dollar is uh, the U.S. can't live with high rates. I mean, n none of the developed economies can really live with high rates because debt to GDP is north of 100%. And if you're going to keep interest rates at 5 or 6% for prolonged periods of time, it's just going to consume way too much of the of the budget of the tax revenues of the country. So I think they will ultimately be forced to lower rates. So I'm not I'm not overly concerned as sort of flippant as it may sound about about the dollar in in, in the current environment. Okay, no, that's um, uh, 
That's a very interesting take. Yeah, I don't think that's uh, necessarily the consensus uh, out there, but it's hard to, hard to pinpoint where exactly the consensus is. Would, would be keen to touch on a point you made earlier about the interest rate regime in emerging markets. Is that, is that a reflection you think inflation pressures are, are less uh, uh, pervasive there and there could be sort of a cutting cycle there? Or, or, or sorry, what, 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 what was it that you think is sort of a positive for the interest rate outlook in emerging markets? Yeah, I mean, look, the, the, the poster child here is Brazil, as it often is in terms of it, it's always at the extremes. But to, to you know, to give you a sense, the um, the short-term interest rate in Brazil is called the Selic. It's, it's, it's sitting at around about well, at 13.75 percent. So that's your short-term rates. Uh, current CPI prints and inflation prints are around about three. So. As an investor in, in short-term um, money markets, for, for want of a better word, in Brazil, you, you're picking up a 10% real return on your money. Um, you know, that's versus in the U.S., it's about 2% real. So, you know, very significant um, real rates, and, and, and that is, is mirrored to a lesser extent in other markets, Mexico, South Africa, Indonesia, etc., so, um, you know, I think there is a real scope of the markets have been sitting under, I'd say, pretty tight uh, monetary conditions, and I think there really is some scope for that to ease. Um, and, and so that was where the comment was placed. It was sort of really um, on, on this sort of very high real rate and therefore pretty restrictive monetary environment. Okay, great. Thanks, uh, Nick. And then if I flip to my sort of final macro question then, and it uh, relates to sort of the China reopening story, which I think is sort of widely considered to be uh, disappointing. And just thinking about how, you, how that troubles you or whether you are infused that perhaps you might get something of an emphatic stimulative uh, response. How, how are you assessing that, uh, that combination? Yeah, look, I think... I think certainly it's, it's disappointed most market participants. Um, the sort of the, the, you know the weakness of the Chinese economy in terms of its, its opening up post-COVID. Uh, the, the, the Chinese consumers through COVID, no different to consumers in, in the rest of the world in COVID, saved uh, they saved about 1.6, 1.7 trillion dollars of excess savings uh, simply because you had nowhere to spend the money. To, uh, similar to the UK and the US experience, um, and, that, and that should should leave the consumer in a very good position. And allied to the fact that savings rates are are the highest in, in any of the major economies globally and have been consistently for the past decade. So, you know, the the the, the weakness I think is sort of put down at, at, at a couple of points. The first is the property sector, which. I think it's going to struggle for some time. Um, we've had a, you know, a lot of policy-driven um, pronouncements in the property sector over the past decade, uh, and I think we're getting to a point where the property sector is not going to be the very strong driver of GDP that it has in the past. And so allied to the property sector is a lot of consumption, uh, and I think you know, the, the best case would be that that's a sort of flattish or um, type, type of, type of um, driver of, of GDP. So that, that would be the first point I'd make. The second is that the government in all its regulation has really, um, I think, impacted animal spirits in, in uh, China. So, you know, all the regulation around the tech sector, et cetera, et cetera. And, and so that also 
has a dampening impact on, on consumption. Uh, you, have, you have longer term issues, um, clearly demographics now are no longer a positive tailwind in China as well, although that is sort of imperceptible until you, until you look at very long time series. Um, so, so those are the drags. Um, some of it is, is structural, uh, but I do think we'll continue to see the Chinese doing their best to stimulate. Uh, every single day we get snippets of, of local stimulation, you know, local Shanghai, Guangzhou, uh, stimulating. And so I think this consumption area will get better um, over time, but it's just it, it's going to take time. And, and, and my confidence is ultimately based on the excess savings and the very long-term savings rate that the Chinese consumers have, have, um, have been saving at. Okay, great. Well, Mike, we'll flip to sort of uh, more company-specific issues. We'll start in, uh, in China. And those who might sort of um, pick up, I don't know, those sort of fact sheets or look at uh, other sort of more publicly available data on the, on the, on the funds that you own might uh, be of the view that you're not owning as much of the sort of China Internet or platform companies that some of your peers uh, might be holding. I mean, first of all, is that the case? Um, and why might that be the case? I mean, we, we, we assume that those holding it uh, like the look of the valuation and sort of think about the, the growth prospects and think about maybe regulation being past its peak. So um, are you holding less and uh, why might that be? Yeah, look, Ben, I'm not sure if I own less or more versus my peers. Yeah, okay. Um, I uh, sort of tend to just focus on, 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 on the fund per se. Um, but let me, let me give you my, my perspective on the, on the Chinese platform or internet companies, the likes of Alibaba, Tencent, etc. Um, look, on, on, in aggregate, I think we are through the worst of the regulatory onslaught. Uh, that's very clear. There have been very clear pronouncements from the highest leadership in, in China. They are looking for these companies to take a lead in AI development. Uh, and so I think there's a bit of a quid pro quo um, going on with, with these companies. And, and then secondly, I would say that I think the valuations are on, in aggregate cheap. Um, you know, which, you know, whichever way you cut it, I think valuations are cheap. Um, but, but ultimately, the asset test is do these companies return capital to shareholders? Because um, you know there, there is no point owning these businesses unless they return capital to shareholders. And actually, the answer is quite encouraging here because you know if you run through some of the holdings we, we have, so Alibaba's in the midst of a $20 billion buyback. They're going to spin off businesses like Ant Financial just in, in its entirety, uh, trading on single-digit earnings. Um, if you look at the likes of NetEase, which is one of the large game developers in China and globally, they are buying back $5 billion. By reference, their market cap is just north of $50 billion. Um, VIP Shop, which is an online version of TK Maxx, um, that, that's buying back a billion. Its market cap is $7 billion. So, so I guess my answer in summary is we're probably against the benchmark about neutral, but heavily, heavily weighted towards those businesses that are actually buying back shares. Um, and fortunately, there's quite a few of those. Okay, well, thanks for um, uh, illuminating us as to where you are, I guess, you're sort of relative, as you say, to, to, to benchmarks, but where you're yeah. favoring and, and, and things you like. I mean, again, 
could be wrong here, but uh, again, looking at these sort of fact sheets, it seems as though like a TSMC, Samsung, SK Hynix are things you do uh, do like. And as we know, they're clearly integrated, a key part of the semiconductor industry. I mean, is it that, is, is it that's why you hold them? Is it you like the semiconductor industry, or is there sort of more to these businesses that, uh, uh, that, that give you the appeal? No, you're absolutely right in terms of the holdings in TSMC, Samsung, SK Hynix, um, and, and really the, um, the, the buyer thesis is predicated on, on, on a couple of things. But the first one is valuation. Um, you've got the likes of TSMC still trading towards the bottom of its 10-year range. It's trading on low teams price earnings multiple. Now, for, for those in the, those people who are looking towards the U.S. market, you've got NVIDIA. I, I don't even know what multiple it's trading on. Um, maybe, so, maybe clinging on to double digit, but no, teaching your triple, probably. <laughs> yeah, I think it's, that's exactly where I was going. I think it's sort of triple digit. Um, and, and every single NVIDIA chip is manufactured by TSMC. So NVIDIA doesn't have a business without TSMC, just to put it in context. So you have an almost 10x difference in, in the way in which the market is treating these stocks. I'm, I'm not decrying NVIDIA in any shape or form. They are the cornerstone of AI, but, um, but, but just the discrepancy is enormous. Um, and then you've got the memory, the memory sector, so that's the Samsung Electronics and SK Hynix. As a reminder, there are only three players there. So part of the, part of the thesis um, is, you know, step one is valuation, and the second part of the thesis is this, this is a consolidated industry. In the, in the case of TSMC, they effectively are 95% of the sort of uh, leading edge semiconductor chips. So if you're trying to do something very clever like NVIDIA, um, Qualcomm, etc., cetera, uh, you, you need their expertise. Um, and then within the memory segment, you've, you've got only three players. So it's a consolidated uh, sector. Um, and, and it's a cyclical sector as well. For sure, there's a lot of inventory stocking and restocking, and and and, and we we bought these, I guess, into the into the sort of nadir of the news, the worst news flow, um, and um, and and things are just about starting to get a bit better in, across the sector. But the stocks obviously move ahead of that, um, and of course, AI will play a significant role both in the amount of information that's needed. So memory, and also the processing of that information. That's the likes of TSMC or NVIDIA. Um, so I think, you know, in a nutshell, that that's that's the reason why we own those stocks and and, and, and remain optimistic about them. Okay, great. And um, but beyond the uh, fabulous sort of technology companies you see in emerging markets, we, we often sort of a narrative that's uh, laid out is how exciting it is to be attached to the sort of emerging consumer, emerging middle class. And to, to, to one way to play that is to uh, allocate to insurance businesses. You know, as people buy more stuff, uh, they want more insurance products and want more savings products. And, you know, uh, it's a really compelling story. But things like companies like AR, AIA, Ping, Ping An, you know, China Life haven't necessarily been great stocks. Um, over recent sort of years, yeah. perhaps I'm being harsh, but you know, what, what, what's holding those stocks back and, uh, and how might that improve? 
Yeah, Ben, look, you're absolutely right. Um, I, I sort of differentiate amongst those, those leading insurers predominantly with a China, China focus. I think AIA is by far the, the highest quality of those. I think, I think there are a couple of factors at play here. Uh, I think the market's got it wrong for, to, to, to start with. Um, but, you know, I think that the, probably the predominant factor is, is one where people are cautious about China, and I think that's obviously the, the, the recovery out of COVID has been a concern. Um, but, but there's also geopolitical elements. Uh, after the sort of chastening experience of, of Russia and the Ukraine, people are very nervous about China, Taiwan, and, and so you, you, you only have to look at flow data to see you know, a big shift into the likes of India versus China, et cetera. But to give you some context in, in AIA, um, their most recent results, they saw 28% value of new business growth. I mean, that's a fantastic number. Okay, admittedly, we, we, we're still in this sort of awkward period of comparing against, um, you know, still partially lockdown uh, periods. Um, but I think what's going on there is the Chinese um, have famously very high savings rates, 30% plus. Um, they've traditionally put that into property and into wealth management products, which were closely tied to property. And that's no longer as viable uh, a destination for savings. In addition, the Bank of China has been reducing rates to try and help stimulate the economy, so you don't get much um, when, you, when you invest into, um, in, into deposits at a bank. And, and so I think there is a, a real um, impetus in terms of people taking out, Chinese citizens taking out uh, insurance policies as an investment product. And, and hence we've seen this very strong um, value of new business growth out of AIA. So I think, look, I, I think the market has got it wrong. By the way, AIA is another another company that's just buying back shares every single day uh, in the marketplace um, and trading it towards its 10-year lows. So um, the market hasn't treated the, the stocks particularly well, but uh, therein hopefully lies the opportunity. Yeah, okay, yeah, nicely put. Um, so to sort of close out with uh, a couple of sort of regional questions in the in the preferred deferral round, you you highlighted your uh, like your, how much you well you prefer India over China. Um, yeah. Can you talk us through uh, some of the reasons behind that and uh, and, and why India's outperformance of China you know might persist? Yeah. Um, so, so look, India's got a number of positive tailwinds. It, it, it's generally had them, those, those tailwinds have persisted um, for some time, but, but probably um, are, are in an even better place today. So um, the, the first one I'll point to is actually the capital cycle. So the Indian financial system is separated into state banks and, and private banks. Um, the state banks got involved in a huge amount of very poor credit underwriting of large capital projects about a decade ago, um, and that's really reduced their appetite to extend credit for China to build infrastructure, et cetera, et cetera. But that has largely been worked out, and we, so we're starting to see a lot more money going into infrastructure in, 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 in India. Um, so, so that would be the, 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 the first point that, that I would make. Um, the, the second one is very well-known, demographics. Um, and 
India is, is a you know 1.4 billion population with a GDP per capita sub three thousand uh, dollars, and I think that that progression in emerging markets is reasonably easy is not the right word, but reasonably easy from three thousand to about eight to nine thousand dollars, and then you potentially get into this middle income trap, which we you know is beyond this, this discussion, but. So I think, that, I think that's the second point. And then the third one is clearly geopolitics. Um, people are looking to shift production lines from China to India. Um, Apple are, are, are a poster child of this. So, you know, those are the, those are the big drivers, for, for sure. Um, the problem is the market understands those. Yeah. It's an expensive market. And so really, um, you know, we are very, very much uh, focused in on the financials where you, you own three of the private sector banks um, where the PE multiples range between about 10 and about 14 times earnings um, versus a consumer company trading on 55 or 60 times earnings. Yeah, I mean, that must be a, a tricky one to, to manage. Obviously, yeah, I mean, India deserves its premium, but it's how much of a premium um, does, it, does it merit? Um, and glad to leave that one to you, uh, Nick. And then uh, flipping to Latin America, being a, uh, a big relative outperformer versus Asia, you talked a little bit about, about Brazil uh, at the top of this uh, podcast. But uh, again, why, why might uh, Latin America's uh, success persist, or is it looking pretty vulnerable? Look, I think Latin America um, has, you know, each country has its own story to, to, to start with. So. You know, if I kick off with Mexico, um, it's very much reassuring. Um, a huge amount of manufacturing is moving back to the U.S. and therefore, by definition, Mexico. Mexican um, labor rates are actually cheaper than China. Their proximity means that the logistics costs are lower. So you are seeing, and, and I'm very skeptical of these types of arguments, but you know, our, our discussions with companies on the ground is that there is very real um, uh, development of manufacturing to support um, the U.S. Um, so, so, that, so Mexico has that as a, as a tailwind, um, and, and that, that probably, you know, remittances is another, is another area that that, that, that it benefits from a lot. Um, in, in Mexico, we have um, rather limited opportunity set. It's quite a static opportunity set in, in terms of stocks, but you know, we'll own, for example, one of the leading airport operators where there's still a huge, huge propensity of people to switch from bus travel to uh, uh, airline travel, for example. Brazil, switching to Brazil, which is the biggest market, um, I mean, there I think the, the, rate, the, the real rate levels are probably, it's, you know, the, the most favorable comments in, in that we, we're talking about 10% real rates, um, almost 14% nominal rates in Brazil. And so there's going to be a very significant rate cutting cycle in Brazil, um, which will provide a lot of impetus to consumer-related activity. Um, and, so, and so those are the near-term factors, I think medium-term there are good demographics uh, in, in uh, Latin America. There's a good agricultural base and mining base. Um, and, and those are probably the, the, the key factors I'd highlight. Okay, thanks, Dick. I, I'm sort of going to close out now with a, a rather blunt uh, question, simply to 
get a sense of how enthusiastic you are about the asset class emerging market equities uh, overall and whether it's out and out optimism, whether there's any caution or, or, or how you feel about uh, how, how that level of enthusiasm relative to points in history, you know, a, a sense of um, uh, how bullish you are, if you like, about emerging markets. Yeah, look, I'm a, I'm a rather grizzled investor in emerging markets. <laughs> Not in person, Nick. No. <laughs> Probably in person as well. Um, so, you know, I was reflecting back, um, actually looking at the index um, over the course of the last, actually, 14 years, which has been flat. The dollar index, it excludes dividends, so you get add a little bit, probably 2.5% a year for that. But, um, you know, this, this index has sort of flattened to deceive uh, over, the, uh, over the course of the last 14, 15 years. But what we have is multiples at, at multi-decade lows. Um, it's in fact, generally trading as cheap as it has. Obviously, China bears big weight in that, and China from single-digit P multiples. Um, I think you're seeing good shareholder behavior from the company, so capital returns, cash returns in the forms of dividends and buybacks. Um, and so, actually, I, I'm, I, I, when I look forward, I'm, I'm optimistic about the asset class. Um, it, it will remain volatile, it's, it's given plenty of grey hairs, but um, I, I think we, we, you know, the next decade will see some decent returns, and, and uh, what are decent returns? I, I would like to think you, you, you should be getting somewhere in the range of 7 to 10, 11, 12 percent, that type of, of, of level. Um, you, you know, as, as mentioned, just, just looking at a large number of the corporate bonds today, you can pick up seven or eight percent in dollars. So I think, I think, given the underperformance of the asset class over over many years, valuations are very attractive. Okay, great. Well, nice, uh, nice, positive way to finish. Thoughtful, but uh, yeah, on on balance, uh, pretty encouraging. So. Thank you, Nick. Look, really, really enjoyed the conversation and uh, wishing you, you know, all the best with the, the second half of the year and beyond. And, and hopefully, in the short term, I hope you enjoy your holiday and you aren't disturbed uh, much more by pesky uh, clients and, and uh, journalists and requests such as this. But look, really thank you uh, for, your, for your time. Uh, our biggest thanks, of course, to our audience. I really appreciate uh, you being with us. Any follow-up questions for Invesco, please get in touch with your relationship manager or reach out to myself on LinkedIn. But other than that, thanks again for being with us. Have a great summer and hopefully you can join us next month for our next Time in the Market podcast. Listeners should be aware of the following investment risks. The value of investments and any income will fluctuate. This may partly be the result of exchange rate fluctuations and investors may not get back the full amount invested. Other important information for listeners. This podcast is intended for UK professional clients only and is not for consumer use. Views and opinions are based on current market conditions and are subject to change. This is marketing material and not financial advice. It is not intended as a recommendation to buy or sell any particular asset class security or strategy. Regulatory requirements that require impartiality of investment or investment strategy recommendations are therefore not applicable nor are any prohibitions to trade before publication. Issued by Invesco Asset Management Limited, Perpetual Park, Perpetual Park Drive, Henley-on-Thames, Oxfordshire, 
RG91HH UK. Authorised and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority.